everybody. This is Stephanie Rupert. Thank you for tuning into the Meaning of Everything podcast, where we explore the most innovative insights we can into what it means to be human. Today is episode number 17, and I have on Drs. Seth, Seth Shane and Christopher Carter, who explore contemplative practice and compassion as means by which to help us overcome racism. I'm super excited about today's episode. I met Christopher at that conference that I've been telling you about a couple of months ago now uh, of scholars of religion. And we hadn't actually exchanged information and I didn't, even, I didn't know his name, but we spoke in a circle of friends. I heard about what he was doing about contemplative practice and race. I was fascinated, and so I had to ask around a bunch to, to find these guys, but I'm, I'm so happy that I did. Um, I find what they're doing to be incredibly important. Essentially, at the bedrock of their mission is teaching us how to understand ourselves and our reactions to things. It's something that is alarmingly, you know, surprisingly alarmingly uncommon in when we are when we find ourselves incapable of understanding ourselves, then we're not, we're, we have to be able to understand emotions as they take shape in us. We're going to be able to understand them as they take shape in other people, you know, and try to make, try to make the world a better place. And they have a lot of really interesting things to say about uh, how to actually do that. You know, how to actually uh, change people's minds about race or how to make us behave better uh, with each other. And I mean this in race, but it applies to gender and all different kinds of uh, biases or what have you that that we may carry uh, that we may carry with us a couple of notes about my own stuff before we jump in uh, those of you who watch who consume this media on YouTube will notice that we have a sexy new uh, background so I have been recording these uh, videos I do post all of these on YouTube for those of you who would uh, like to watch me nod my head a lot uh, while I'm talking to these people listening. Um, I've, I've been using a backdrop because I move around a lot in my, in my life. And so it's a way to have a consistent background for y'all. But I have recently, I think, stumbled into a situation that might be slightly more permanent. And so I have decided to um, go ahead and let us just record in, in my studio space. So um, slowly over time, you can take a gander at all of the books on this shelf. Um, they're fantastic. We can talk, we can talk about that um, anytime. So uh, that's that. Stop in on YouTube if you want. You can find this on any other, any other channel. As always, please, please be in touch. And if you want to write a review, I would be really, really grateful. I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. I'll maybe, maybe you'll get a free book out of it. So uh, those are my things. I want to get into this podcast because I'm super excited to talk to these guys and they're just a treat when they're together. So um, I'll just read you a little bit about what they do together. Dr. Seth Shane and Dr. Christopher Carter uh, both study contemplative and spiritual practices, especially in the cultivation of compassion. Uh, Dr. Shane is currently exploring how the compassion practice and critical race and racial formation theories mutually inform each other to create a spiritual path. Uh, Dr. Carter, I know, also teaches courses on Black womanist theology, which is a really, really fantastic field. As part of this effort, they both have created a program together entitled Embodying Racial Awareness for Social Transformation. It seeks in part to facilitate conversations about race by grounding them in compassionate, open, 
non-judgmental, and non-reactive personal and interpersonal spaces. I'm super excited to have them on, so I'll just uh, jump right over to them. Here we go. Okay, cool. Hi, uh, Christopher and Seth. How are you? Great. How are you? Doing well. Yeah. I want to I wanna jump right into it because I, I love what you two are doing, and there's two of you. Whenever I do podcasts where there are three people, uh, the time seems to, seems to fly. So um, perhaps you could, and feel free to moderate yourselves in terms of who talks when, because I'm sure you two talk together a lot, um, fill us in a little bit on uh, what your mission is with your work, you know, why you're doing it, what you think, you know, what you think you can, your potential is for uh, transforming our world. So I, I do the work um, because I can't, I can't not do it. Uh, the way I got into it was through uh, being friends with Chris and uh, attending um, the church where he was pastoring. So being in that context, um, making connections and relationships with people at an, um, primarily African-American church, the friendships there just opened my eyes to race in a way that I didn't get in school, right, through growing up or in graduate work. And um, so that combined with what I was studying and spirituality and contemplative practices uh, sort of created the fertile ground for our work to come into being. Mm -hmm. And uh, so just, yeah, the, the experience that I have for the relationships, my eyes just opening to race, it's a door I can't close. And so I, I have to do the work. It's a calling. And I would say for me, uh, it's, it's similar in the sense that um, our, our friendship and our relationship is really at the root of what it is we do. I think we, we model a lot of our work, but our, our thinking about it comes out of our ability to have um, honest conversations with each other about all kinds of stuff. Uh, and, and, that, yeah, and race being among those topics. And I told Seth years ago, um, before we were starting doing this work, I was like, you talk more about race than any other white person I ever met in my life, you know, before he was doing it. I was like, you just are interested in it. You think about it a lot. Mm. Um, and so when you combine that with my own work in, in, in um, race theory, uh, the fact that I'm in an interracial marriage, and so I'm, I'm thinking about race in interesting and, and unique ways, perhaps because of that. Um, and my, also my own particular calling, and I guess this kind of gets more to answering your question about maybe the mission of our work, um, is I would say like to fashion something that's like the beloved community. Um, and that's, it, it's deeply for me, Christian, you might call it spiritual or whatever, but it comes out of my call to really create and fashion a, a community that mirrors the kind of relationship that Seth and I have, um, that is open, honest, vulnerable, um, and that, that interracial and intraracial dynamics are a, a, a core component of that. Um, and so this, this practice has just been foundational for us and our relationship. And so um, it kind of just naturally happened. That's so beautiful. I'm going to, I'm going to have to refrain. I'm going to, from doing a lot of, oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I feel that impulse in me all the time while you two are talking. So just know that's in there. Uh, moving, you mentioned the practice. I haven't, we haven't explored it much, um, although I did hint to the listeners in the intro about what we'd be talking about. So what is this practice that you have? You know, how does it work? What is it? What's it for? 
Yeah, so it's, it's called the Compassion Practice, and it comes out of the Center for Engaged Compassion at Claremont School of Theology. Mm-hmm. And uh, Frank Rogers and Andy Dreiser were my primary mentors, and they created the practice. And so um, it's, it's a spiritual contemplative practice, um, and it's, it, there's, there's four parts to it. So, I mean, this is what you want, like the brief overview, right? <laughs> um, so um, the first step is to, to uh, get grounded. And so groundedness being, um, well, if you kind of look to our current administration, that's a great example of not being grounded, of being reactive, fear-based, seeing things through the lens of fear. And so grounded is coming back to ourselves, seeing the world clearly, um, and n- instead of through a lens of reactivity. So if we're feeling afraid, we kind of see the world through a lens of fear. Um, and when you're grounded, you see it more non-reactively, openly. You feel most like yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first step is to get grounded because nothing else can happen until you're able to create some space between the emotions you're feeling and how you react to them. Um, so then after that, the second step is uh, compassion for ourselves. And then the third step is compassion for others. Mm. And those are both done basically the same way. Just one is self-directed and the other step is other-directed. Um, and there's a series of steps there um, for uh, cultivating compassion for ourselves. And do I need to go into that nuance? Yeah, I didn't think so. Okay. And then the last step is the uh, discerning compassionate action. And that's um, after you've done the process of getting grounded and cultivating compassion for yourself and others, uh, action in the world is some is an important part. Um, that every compassionate action, whether small or big, uh, involves some sort of action and taking the wisdom that we've learned from this process into the world in some way. And so those actions can be large-scale actions or small-scale actions. Mm. The authenticity and of it is most important. The, the, point, the point of all you, now I can imagine this being implemented towards a number of different ends, but the primary end that you focus on is like deconstructing race and racism, yeah? Yeah, so we take the compassion practice and then bring it into the context of race and racism and use um, critical race theory, racial formation theory, and the white racial frame primarily mm. um, to uh, talk about race, educate about race um, in ways that we don't see being done very much. Right. Uh, and what is it about this method that is unique and uniquely effective? Uh, I would say the unique part about this method is that um, it takes a structural, we look, we understand race to be structured. You know, we understand that that race is a structured phenomenon. We believe in structural racism, but we also recognize that, that human beings are part of the structure. And so what we try to do is give people the tools to see themselves as, and, and how they operate within that. So we deal a lot with interpersonal ideology. So we can see how people's ideologies inform and reinforce the structures they inhibit. I would say what's unique about our approach <laughs> is that we kind of start with the admission that we all have our particular own um, biases and that we're all kind of afraid to talk about it in the first place. I mean, like the, the first practice we do um, every time we teach this, it's just a time where people come and just say what comes up when they think about race and they name all the anxieties and all the stuff and we write them down. And um, because what we're trying to do, is we're trying to create the space for doing yeah. that first step. We're grounding people 
-hmm. but we're giving them the opportunity to actually express the anxiety that they have. And that initial step of naming it and and creating that kind of uh, vulnerability, right, for people to say, well, these are the concerns I have, it, it automatically makes people less defensive. And it realized that regardless of their own racialization, lots of people have the same kind of concerns, mm-hmm. some different concerns, but concerns. And so it, it makes them open and more curious about why they, all those things that came up and, and also less reactive. Um, and so I would say perhaps maybe, maybe a more direct answer is that we really tend to the emotional inner world of people in ways so people can see themselves and understand how they feel and react about their own racialization rather than just seeing race as purely objective, we understand that race is something that is in racialization, right? It's, it's, we are similar to ways people think about gender, right? And, you know, it's, 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 it's created. Um, but we often see ourselves as fixed, you know, like I'm black or I'm white or I'm Latino and you have this fixed category uh, or we're projected as that, right? Rather than really dealing with the, the ways in which that's very complex for, for everybody. Um, and I think by tending to that, we give people the space to have that second step, which is compassion for themselves and the own ways they've internalized and dealt with and had issues with race. Um, and so I, I think that first step of, of giving people the space to heal, because everybody, regardless of the racialization, has been harmed and wounded by racism. Everybody, white people, you know, included, right? <laughs> you know, but it's giving them that space to, to see it and be able to heal from it and name it in ways that don't, that can enable them to avoid like white guilt or whatever, right? Right. Uh, yes. Uh, the question. Yes. <laughs> question remains as to anyway the function of what we can do with that kind of guilty feeling. But so I'm really interested in when I first met Christopher, just how I got in touch with this work. Um, we were talking about how these, uh, how a contemplative practice of how learning how things feel in your body can be really important for understanding the shape of your like feelings in the world and interactions with other people. And I find it very fascinating because I think one of the foundational problems that we have in dealing with racism and sexism and our cultural as a whole is that people, we just like don't really understand our own experiences. Like we don't know how to make sense of our own feelings and that sort of, self-literacy is something that I see you bringing to the table. Yep, I would agree with that. So that actually ties in with the, what do we do with that feeling of guilt? Um, I can, uh, I kind of want to use that to talk about this Um, because uh, the way we look at at our emotions are basically as different parts of ourselves. We borrow this from internal family systems, the language. And so um, we have like, part of me wants to go to the store, part of me wants to stay home, part of me wants to go to the party, part of me wants to read a book and not go out tonight, right? So we use this language to talk about ourselves. And so we understand these parts as distinct um, beings almost in the world. Um, And that they have their own motives, their own motivations, their own wants and desires. And that, that can get chaotic. So if they take over the seat of our consciousness, then they can drive the world that we see, right? So if, we're, if fear is really present again, right, or guilt, um, and we're overcome with that guilt, then we see the world through that lens of guilt. 
And so in the context of race and racism, um, we know how that plays out, right? Like white guilt is what, what you get, and that's pretty bad. Um, but at the core of those emotions is something um, good, more or less. Basically, each part is yearning for wholeness in the world in some way. They're trying to help us flourish, but don't necessarily know how to help us flourish because they um, see the world through their own lens and the way they see it. And so usually those parts are created when we're children. And so the way a child would deal with a problem is not the way we would deal with that problem as adults. Mm -hmm. And so um, this is the importance of getting grounded, coming back to ourselves, coming back to ourself is what we call it. Um, and so understanding that for me, understanding that guilt is really um, changed the way I interact, that guilt, for me, comes from a desire to connect with people and the realization that I have been racialized in a society where all of that has been invisible to me. Mm -hmm. All of the way that I interact and hurt other people in the world because of my whiteness is invisible. And that guilt comes about because I have glimpses more and more as I continue to do this of how that hurt is played out in the world through my actions, conscious or otherwise. Um, and so, Understanding that guilt as a desire for actually relational connection um, changes the way that I engage issues of race and racism. So instead of projecting that guilt onto Chris and saying, well, you're making race a problem, it's not really an issue, I understand that it's, it's a desire to connect. So. Yeah, and I just, one quick thing, because uh, um, that I want to add a little bit is, is that kind of um, internal move um, is, is a part of the, the, the second step we talked yeah. about, cultivating compassion for yourself. And I would say, fundamentally, uh, it is the part of our process that, that, that uh, cause we've mostly done this with students, you know, students at my school, that they all say like this was helped transform their lives in, in some way, shape or form. It's what we call the U-turn. Um, and literally it's this recognition that rather than, um, projecting our feelings on others or saying you made me feel we recognize that our feelings are um internal dispositions that are coming from ourselves um and rather than pointing at someone we take a u-turn instead of saying well you made me mad you, you you just say well you know i know i am i am angry there's anger within me why am i angry rather than just getting mad at the other person right so it's this particular kind of personal curiosity about what's coming up with us um that i think often we don't have we're, we're trained not to be curious to blame others um, and to me, that's what, again, what sets our stuff apart is, is that kind of beginning piece. The fact that the fact of the matter is we really don't, <laughs> we begin our, we spend the first few sessions of our, our practice, not even talking about race. We teach people how to be aware of what's going on in them. And once they have those tools, then we can start talking about race. We don't jump right into race because yeah. if you do that, that that's just that's crazy because you know i mean <laughs> like you know so i would say maybe i forgot to say that like that's yeah. that's fundamentally yeah. unique we don't start with race we start with the self understand the self do yeah. the u-turn so then when those then we start talking about race you do that move that seth just described and then you can see that as a moment of liberation rather than as um something that's yeah. crippling yeah. Hmm. and and do you see that has it been your experience that people teenagers take to this self-understanding and this, these ideas of taking a u-turn does it sort of come pretty easily once you give them the tools for the most part some have some have a hard harder time picking it up mm -hmm. um that has a lot to do 
with just, I mean, their own disposition. If your woundedness is really close to the surface, it can be harder to engage this material. Right. Um, but yeah, by and large, uh, students really take to it. I would say even if they don't take to it while we're teaching it, um, in the beginning, by the end of the course, I've referenced yeah. it so much and used it so much, they begin to uh, use it. Um, and it, it, it's something that um, I think at some point, once you, it becomes natural. It becomes, my hope is that it becomes a habit. Yeah. Um, but it's still, you know, that's not the, you know, our current society isn't, um, we don't, we don't, um, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, the people who get a lot of uh, praise are not people who are internally aware. Yeah. <laughs> the people who get a lot of praise in our society are people who are come across as strong and and confident and all the you know. So so some of it is we're we're, we're pushing against a social norm that makes it a little bit difficult depending on who your yeah. audience is. I think a very important piece to the puzzle, right? Because everybody's jostling for their validation and, and our, our desires to be loved. And, and we are faced with a challenge of recalibrating, you know, what, what we celebrate, whether or not we'll be successful, I guess, I guess we'll find out. Um, so these practices of learning about your own feelings, they are, are they, uh, sort of an important step for being able to understand the feelings of others? Like we have to, understand what's going on in our own bodies and that sort of enables us to understand how that can work in other people that is that and that's in the correct order the way you said that the first thing we do so if i'm in a situation and i have some reactivity and i notice some feelings difficult feelings the first thing that we do we teach is for people to take what chris said the u-turn right so there's something going on within me that's causing a block of compassionate connection mm -hmm. so i need to look at that first before I can have compassion for another person. Um, and so that's essential. And it, 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 what I, what my experience is that it creates the space for connection with others because you can, once you try to cultivate compassion for another, you use your experience as a starting point, recognizing that their experience is different, but you know like, well, I felt this particular kind of way and you actually really know what that way feels like. You don't have the intellectual understanding of that feeling, right? Because we often, do that, be like, well, this is how I think I feel. If you actually have felt it, you've allowed yourself to feel it, you've talked to it, you've tended it. And so now that gives you the space to really cultivate a, a uh, empathic, compassionate, you know, connection with someone. Because you, you, if they're hurt or they're wounded or whatever, um, you no longer want them to feel that way. You see, you, our, our hope is that you see them as, as fully human. Yeah. Um, and, and you long to connect with them in that way. Um, and so it's essential. And I, and I also think some of this is premised on, you know, basic human, you know, biology that we, we do long to be in community. Um, and we want to find ways to be in community that are transformative. What's beneficial for doing an undergrad is, you know, they're in an environment where many of them do want community, right? They're already in that space. Uh, and so I think it's, it's a fertile ground for the kind of work that we do. Mm. Um, but as much as people long for community, and we certainly do, we're also deeply made, I suppose. I don't, like, <laughs> I don't like to use such, uh, such strong language. We're also very deeply predispositioned to like people in our own groups and dislike people in other groups, right? And so this is obviously, you know, is this a tension that you feel between the 
desires to be in community and also, of course, the desire to elevate your own community above others? Uh, I mean, I think there could be, uh, but I think that it comes back to trying to cultivate a curiosity. Hmm. I would say that that's where I go back to cultivate a particular kind of curiosity because communities come in so many different forms. I mean, I come from this from a background of sports. And so, um, you know, depending on the sport I was playing, the racial ethnic makeup was going to be very different, you know? Um, playing soccer is very different than playing football versus playing basketball, right? And so, and those are distinct communities. Uh, and, and so I think that a lot of it, uh, can't, while I think it's true that we do want to be with people that are like us, I mean, Seth is my best friend, Seth is an academic, you know, like we like the same kind of stuff, you know? And so that, that, that's clearly a part of it. Um, at the same time, I think what we have to be able to do and what we try to teach is to cultivate that kind of curiosity so that you can engage in relationships with others when the opportunity presents itself. Um, and I would say to a certain degree, um, if you're talking about teaching anti-racism, um, you know, part of what we talk about with discerning compassionate action is, is creating relationships, like really trying to create relationships with people who are outside of your race, class, you know, circle. Because um, you, you have to actually do that. In college, you, it, it's easier. Um, when you get out of college, I mean, that's work, you know? <laughs> like, that's, that's work, because yeah. depending on where you are, that, that's not going to be inevitable. Right. And one of the steps, because so, we're talking about different kinds of groups and how we relate. So one of the steps is sensing the sacred, which has to do with the interconnectedness of life and the world and the interconnectedness of all. And so when you have time to soak in that step and really have an embodied experience of that, um, that makes it easier to get rid of this kind of tribe mentality. I've got my tribe, you've got yours. Um, but to see us as fundamentally interconnected. Mm. Um, do, do people get that? You know, is that something that is sort of graspable fundamentally? Uh, I, I, um, yes. I, that's one that we were kind of struggling with during the study that I did or that we did. Um, because it's a matter of, that's one that really takes some translating. So since this comes out of our context of like a, a Christian theological context, um, we have had to spend effort figuring out how to translate that in ways that aren't theological, because that's not, a, that's not meaningful for everyone that we were working with. Right. And so that's what we've worked on. We actually go to uh, Neil, Neil deGrasse Titan. Tyson, sorry. Yeah, uh, the imminent theologian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the Tyson. theologian right? <laughs> I think he would hate that. Yeah, he would hate it. Um, but he's got, he, he made it, he made it um, commented on the interconnectedness of um, everything and that, um, like at the particle level, basically, and how that works. And that, uh, we were watching that and we're like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what we're talking about, but without all of the theological language, right? So this, this would appeal to a wider audience. Mm. But it was still capturing what the essence of what we think is important about that. So that's interesting. I actually often make a metaphysical argument like that based off of scientific principles. You know, love is the ultimate reality, and I can prove it because, you know, uh, fundamentally speaking, everything is you know interconnected yeah. or unified or what have you. Um, yes, so I, I like I like what you're doing there. I wanted to ask about this these paths to self understanding. The the path that you take is sort of non 
traditional, right? Traditionally, maybe we'll see people want to get distance from their emotions to try to gain some kind of objectivity. Um, it, and that that has a very long pedigree in, in Western thought. And I'm wondering um, what your opinions are about this, you know, this mode of self-understanding and what, what you do or why it is important that you push back against that. Uh, I think it's extremely important to push back against the legacy of enlightenment thinking hmm. um, because Wait, of... Can, sorry, can you just like tell me way more about that? <laughs> I would uh, so, yeah. Kind of see it um, as Cartesian dualism, uh, mind body, mm -hmm. and that out of that comes the idea of rational thinking and the mind over our emotions, and um, that the the right way to be is to be rational. And so we still see this uh, as an implicit value in college classrooms, right? At, when you enter a college classroom, leave your emotions at the door. You're here to do intellectual work, mm -hmm. right? So head brains on a stick. Right, so kind of that, that kind of idea. Um, and the problem with that is that the research that's been done on how emotions work for humans and how our brains work is that we fundamentally make sense of the world through emotions. Uh, and that we can't actually make sense of the world without them. Uh, and so instead of controlling our emotions, we need to understand how they influence us and how we make sense of the world. This is what needs to be done and not this rational, like my emotions don't control me. So we actually emphasize distance between our emotions, but not for objectivity, mm. but to help us ground it. Um, so that when we have an emotional reaction, um, we want to create space between our feeling of that emotion and how we respond uh, to that emotion. Right, uh, but instead you, of you need to be close enough in order to you need to experience it in order to be able to work with it, you know, and to hold its space. Yeah. yeah, like it's not a distancing to let it pass, it's a distancing to understand, right? You know, I wanna, uh, what we talk about is, um, you know, often um, we're enmeshed with our emotions, right? And, and if you've been in any kind, any kind of relationship, um, you know, whether it be, um, you know, a partner or parents or friends or whatever, you know, when you get angry with someone, you're having a conversation with them or you're arguing, um, you are the anger, you know? <laughs> like it's easy yeah. to be enmeshed in that anger. And so what we talk about is actually creating some space so you can recognize that a part of you is angry. Um, you see, and you can actually have some distance from that anger, look at it and say, okay, what is it? What am I really angry about? Like what's really the issue? Um, and how can I ground myself to have a conversation um, that's actually gonna be helpful and allow us to be able to move on and heal rather than being dug in and being defensive and being like, I have to feel like I have to be right. Those are the same kinds of things that come up, especially when we're talking about, I mean, anything yeah. controversial, but especially about race. Mm -hmm. So the tending to that emotion, to go back to um, some things I think Chris said earlier, is that, or parts, we go back to parts. And so that emotion is a part of us. And so we don't get distance from it to be objective from it. We get distance from it so that we can understand it. And then we, we the way, the idea that we like to um, teach is that you treat it like you would a friend. How would you tend to a friend in need? Is the same way you can tend to your own emotion um, and to understand them. Because at the core of that, there's a wisdom, right? That emotion is trying to do something to help us, even if it, its outward actions are not helpful. At the core, it, it wants us to flourish. Mm. 
Yeah, um, something that I, a phrase that you use that I really appreciate is deliberative action. And what the reason I like it so much is because it sort of emphasizes what this can do for you and for all of us collectively, right? So can you unpack a little bit like what it is to be liberated from this practice or in this practice? Um, yeah, I, I think that I, I'm still, I'm trying to define a little bit more, I guess, what I, what I even mean by liberative. <laughs> uh, in, in the sense that I'm using liberative and anti-oppressive in, in kind of complementary ways a little bit now because, um, and I, I'll explain a little bit more about that, but essentially, um, we see this as the compassion practice has the, the last step is called discerning compassionate action. Um, as it regards to uh, teaching about race and anti-racism, um, we focus on a few different specific types of practices that are empower, um, that are about uh, justice and solidarity, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and so, uh, and, and we feel like um, the liberative part that comes out of this is a ways in which we are able to create community that allows us to be authentic to ourselves and empower other communities to be themselves, right? Um, and and it's it's different than I would say a lot of other a lot of some other I shouldn't say all a lot of uh, anti-racist kind of trainings um, or are premised on a kind of um, not justice in a sense where they they create these tacit levels of dependency on a kind of you know organization that's maybe funding another smaller organization they're not really trying to like um, help them do their own work better. They're saying, well, we're going to give you some money so you can do some work so we can continue to get credit for the work that you're doing. Um, so we're, we're talking more about creating systems where people can be, communities can be encountered, uh, empowered and also be in solidarity, which in this sense, solidarity isn't just, um, you know, I'm just going to be alongside and say I'm an ally. It's figuring out how you can use, if you're a white person, your allyship in ways to deconstruct whiteness, you know, or, or white, white dominance, right? Um, and, and how might you be an insider, um, if you are a white person, in spaces that can begin to dismantle the systematic ways in which people of color are marginalized within your own organization. Um, and so for me, I think the liberation comes from a particular kind of self-understanding, but a groundedness that allows you to engage in the world in ways that um, can be liberative for others. Um, and, and, and so it's um, the... And the reason I was saying I'm kind of, you know, I don't say hedging with the word, but being careful is that I'm leaning more and more towards using the word anti-oppressive because what I found in, in, the, in the language of liberation, sometimes I see it getting conflated with equality with oppressor. <laughs> and people don't mean it like that, but they're, they're talking about I want to be equal. And I don't want equality with someone who, I don't want equality with a group of people who have power over I want to deconstruct the systems that maintain the oppressive structure, right? And so if I align my thinking to be anti-oppressive, um, it, it means that I'm always aware of and analyzing how my behavior, how my thoughts, how my actions might harm others. Um, and so for me, like, as you probably know through my work with Donovan, um, this, is where, this is where my veganism comes in because it, it shapes how I think about what, everything I do. Um, and Lord knows that's not like perfect, but for me, it, it, it's a one way I can practice and be consistent with that kind of anti-oppressive framework. That was beautiful. Another oh moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and this sort of 
you know, I think part of what we have to do when we sell, you know, quote unquote, sell these things, when we uh, talk about the, the importance of them is also discuss how they can be good for us personally, right? And so when we're working to deconstruct these systems, like, yes, we are, and especially, right, this is important when you are in dialogue with people who are in the dominant position, right, the position of power, like this can also be helpful for you in terms of your ability to say connect with people um, or deconstruct um, you know the the guilt or whatever it is the negative things that are sitting with you and so um, are there ways in which this anti-oppressive slash liberative thinking um, can all can be good for people in this position of power too I mean how do you think it's good for you um, <laughs> yeah uh, so for me Yes, one of one of the major things that has helped me cultivate a way of maintaining this way of being in the world in ways that I don't burn out, uh, because that's pretty high, um, is to understand um, like smaller liberative actions, right? So in in terms of internal awareness. So every time that I become aware of some sort of internal racist reaction that I have, or um, external, but hopefully that's growing less and less, and hopefully all of this is coming less and less, basically bringing more attention to it. So initially, when I started this process, I would notice like being around in line, and there's a group of uh, people of color in line for something, that there'd be an initial anxiety or fear within me, and then, so one, bringing awareness to that, and then there's shame and guilt, because I'm like, why do I feel this way? These are just people of color and, you know, in line to get a sandwich or something. Why am I afraid? Um, and then realizing, okay, that fear comes from some sort of yearning for wholeness. And so what I started to be able to connect is every time I have an awareness of this internal reaction, racist reaction, that that's a moment of possible liberation for me because now I'm aware of it. And how many times in my life up to this point had I been in the same situation, done the same things and not been aware of it? So every time I'm aware of something, I have a chance to change how I am in the world. Um, and so for me, making that connection, I realized that this is a path of liberation. And so staying on this path, working to become aware of those things is, is a chance to become a new person in the world and to become more relationally connected. I think for me, um, it's been I guess, two things. I think one, um, it allows me to talk about uh, race in ways that um, most white people can hear because I, I have the tools to have to be grounded and the language to use to uh, be invitational, use narrative and all the other skills that I've been able to develop. Um, so I can be authentic to my own experience, right? I don't have to pretend my race because uh, often what happens when you're a person of color, especially an academic, is you have to go in a space and you have to you have to try to blend in. I mean, you just you have to. So now I don't focus on that so much. I focus on really okay, trying to be me, um, and I have the tools to be in that space and be me, um, and not get reactive to everybody else's stuff that's in the room about me, right? Um, and if someone does happen to say something that's offensive or whatever, I can actually remain grounded and address it. Uh, which is very empowering um, and, and I think a part of, uh, you know, something that uh, for me has definitely been liberative um, and as, as that person of color, I think the last thing is my relationship with Seth 
allows me to continue to have, um, you know, some faith and hope in white people, you know, and like, <laughs> and that sounds like silly, but I'm like, you know, that's not, you know, that, that, if, you know um, I, I have to have some hope that there are white people who really want to do this kind of work um, that are committed to it and, and, and um, beyond the kind of language of ally, but see themselves as also trying to deconstruct um, white supremacy and white dominance. Um, and, and also recognizing that it's a constant journey. They're not like, you know, Seth isn't, he's like, oh, I'm, I figured it out, you know? I mean, we all have bias and, and racial bias in us. That's just part of the system. Um, but finding people that are really ab about doing that kind of work as a way of being in the world, um, for me is liberative because I realize I know Seth can get in the space that I can't, right? And so I have to be able to trust him, you know, that he's gonna go there and do that. And that has to, um, uh, for me, that, that's liberative because it gives me confidence that things can change, you know? Um, if there's more, you know, I mean, Seth is as white as you can look, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> if there's more white dudes that look like that, that go in spaces and, well, I mean, I've heard dude, you're right, that's fair, that's fair, that's fair, you got a good point, you know? Uh, but going in spaces doing that kind of work, I mean, that, that's like some really cooperative kind of secret stuff that can really dismantle um, some systematic oppression. I absolutely agree with you, you know, there's, there's, a, a wide, wide a, a array of um, ways in which people can be uh, relating to this, and and the act of deconstruction, I think, is so important. You know, especially uh, when you're looking at people, you know, in these positions of power. Um, so we don't have a ton of time, and I think I want to, if you don't mind, uh, I wrote a well. It's a long question. I wrote a question that I had for you. Um, and basically what I'm curious about is um, the potential we have using these kinds of practices that actually transform society like as a whole. <laughs> um, I know that there's a ton of people on the planet, but like what, what potential do we have here and or what sort of challenges are there in, in making these sorts of, of transformations on a larger scale? I mean, I think one of the first steps is, um, so that's, that's like a structural view of race is really helpful for understanding larger scale things. And so these practices are helpful for connecting us individually to those structures. So one of the problems that we see is that, um, and I think it's particularly prevalent with white people, is when, when students start to learn about race or people, white people start to learn about race, at some point they get a good grasp of the structural nature of race and are able to identify how that manifests in like policy decision-making. They see redlining in housing, um, segregation in education. And so we can see how all of this works, but name it as a problem that's out there in the world somewhere, right? But not, it's not, but there's no racism amongst my friend groups, or maybe there's racism in my friend groups, but there's no racism within me. I'm not racist, but it's a problem that's in the world. And so these practices help connect us to those structures. Well, if these structures structure us, then to what degree do I exist within those structures? How do they manifest within me and within the way I think, move, perceive, and live in the world? And so these practices are really helpful for that. And I would say, um, I think there's tremendous potential. Uh, we are just at a point now where we're so, still in the early stages of, of uh, presenting our practice, doing our practice, um, you know, um, Seth's early career, you know, job market stuff. So we're both trying to get like 
settled in our professional lives. You know, we're at that nebulous place, you know what I'm saying? We're like, we have to get our footing in the door where we can really start doing stuff, which is just yeah. the nature of, you know, this is the nature of academia, right? It's the nature of even this work in nonprofit. I mean, it's just, that's what it is. So we're at that beginning space. Um, but, you know, Seth, uh, we, we did a study um, at, at my school at the University of San Diego um, using the practices that we got really good, you know, feedback for us. We have data that shows that this stuff works. Um, and, and I would love to be able to do something on more, a larger scale, but as, a, as I guess a particular example would be the last time, what, what I do with this, what our practice is, I, whenever I teach my class on black luminous theology, we use it in the very beginning. And we spend the first few weeks talking about race and how to talk about race. Then we talk about black theology. There's a, a particular student, um, who comes from a very wealthy family in Northern California. And by the end of the class, like she, white student, considered herself, like the people Seth was talking about, my, maybe my friends say some racist stuff, but I'm not racist, you know, I'm like, you know, whatever. By the end of the course, she wrote me this long letter after the class, and she said um, essentially how much she had learned and grown and transformed, how much she um, felt like um, she had these particular preconceived notions about race that she felt more progressive, but she realized how she had these biases in her um, and that how the course helped transform her and her own awareness of herself and her own communities and her own particular community of wealthy white people, right? <laughs> you know, who had power and she was going into Biba in those communities. And she's like, I know I have this work to do in my own community. Um, and, you know, she said, she's like, if, if I could recommend anything, it would be for people and students before they graduate to take your class um, because it would give them the tools they need to go on the road and make this kind of change. Um, and so my hope is that we continue to get students like her, <laughs> you know, and other students, but you know, if you get enough students from a, a certain um, privileged and powerful background, um, give them the tools and, and help them awaken them to these kinds of ways, um, you hope that they go out and continue to do stuff with it. You know, I mean, we can't be with them, but that, that, that's the hope. Um, so I definitely had and restrained one of those oh that's so nice um <laughs> moments when you when you were talking about her intentions and her letter i think that that's absolutely true and these kinds of these kinds of works you know they, they don't they don't happen overnight but they do happen you know the arc of justice is not short um <laughs> it is it is not short the arc of the universe but we do we do we do get there i think we do get there um slowly hopefully so i i think we should wrap it up do you have any any, any final words anything anything that you would like to share i guess if there's anything i like to share at the end with your your massive uh, listening audience uh <laughs> is that you know there has to be a space for us to have we have to hold on to a particular kind of hope i mean kind of in what you're just saying right with regards to recognizing that uh, um, that we, we we have to have a kind of hope and and not a kind of flippant hope that things are just going to get better without our work, but a kind of a, a way of being in the world where we recognize that in order to um, to we have to create the world we want to live in, you know, and that does take some kind of work. Um, and and if we believe that this is kind of possible, we, we want it to happen. Um, that just doing little things every day can begin to make that kind of change that we want. And, and I think so it's easy to get defeated um, in this particular context we're in um, and, and, and just to get sad and depressed. But if you begin to make changes in your own community, you be, people want to feel love. People want yeah. to feel connected. People want to feel heard and validated. And when you like that spark, 
that spark, I think, is more powerful than the fear and the hate yeah. that, that what's being used right now. Yeah. Um, I think the fear and the hate, um, it, it, it can sell um, on a national you know, uh, media, but if you do the fear and the hope in your community, you can transform your community, you can transform your own self, and, and I think that's what we're trying to give people the access and the tools to be able to do that. Um, and, and so to, to not lose sight of that hope and recognizing that if we believe in that, that, that kind of hope and belong to this kind of community, we have to do the work to make it so. That was really beautiful. It was really beautiful. I'm, just gonna, I'm gonna leave it at that. Um, do you have a website or anywhere that you would recommend people go to learn about this sort of thing? So yeah, that's a, uh, we, we gotta work on that. Um, I think uh, uh, probably the best way to get a, a, a hold of us or find us is uh, what's the name of the website? It's, um, the Center for Engaged Compassion. Um, and because those are our mentors. Um, you know, uh, I'm obviously, you can find me easily at the University of San Diego uh, School of Theology website. Um, and, uh, you know, Facebook and all that good stuff. We, we need to do a better job of actually creating <laughs> a digital space for our work. We have not done that yet, uh, you know, but. I'm sorry I put we, you on the spot. Oh, no, 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 that's, 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 no you, that, that's totally fine. Most people would have done this. Uh, Seth and I are very open yeah. about our own um, ADHD. Uh, yeah, so that's something that we're like, hey, we need to do that. And then we do like 10 other things. So yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're starting to work on that. Um, that's great. People can just keep referring others to this podcast episode. So there you go. <laughs> fine by me. Um, thank you. Thank you both uh, so much for joining me. Uh, this has been Christopher Carter and Seth Shane. I'm Stephanie Ruper, and you know how, uh, how to find me uh, at the Facebook and the Insta and all the likes. So thank you everybody so much for tuning in, and I will chat with you next time. Take care.